We will continue on page 25 of your notes. And if you need some notes, Larry has some and John has some that they will get to you. So if you need a set of notes, get your hand up. And we'll pick up where we left off there in just a bit, but I just want to remind you of a few things. One is that today is the final lesson in this series that we've been going through for several weeks when we have to choose. So we will finish this today because next Sunday in this hour, we're starting a new series called From Self-Help to God's Help. And as you see in your program and also the insert that was uh, put in the program, that that's going to deal with uh, God's prescription for some of the problems that we all face, uh, fear, worry, anxiety, those kinds of things. So that should be helpful to all of us because all of us face one or more of those from time to time. So I encourage you to be here next week and also I encourage you to invite someone and to help you with that. We printed invitations for that series. There's a stack of those out at the information center desk. So pick up a snack and then pass those out to your friends and family and, and co-workers this coming week. So that's one week uh, from today. And then on the 19th, a week from Saturday, that's our annual Family Fun Hayride Day. This year it's going to be at a place called Farmer Charlie's. It's about 10 minutes south of here. We've never done it there. The place we did it last year was unavailable, uh, but I visited Farmer Charlie's a couple times. It looks like you'll have plenty of fun for everybody. And they do it a little bit different than the places we've gone in the past. It's a one price, and then you just do everything they have there. You can do the hayride as many times as you want, uh, and they have a bunch of stuff, especially for the kids. Uh, we have some of that listed in the program uh, for you. Uh, but you pay one price for a wristband, and then you can use it uh, all day. We're going to meet at 4.30. You can actually go there prior to that if you want to get the kids uh, some time uh, before we all get there. Uh, but that's the way it'll work. Get your wristbands, and then uh, uh, on the 19th at 4.30 at Farmer Charlie's, we'll have a, a good time together. Now, you get the wristbands at our resource center, and that's right across the hallway. If you go out that door, then there's a room there that has a, a tag on it, a resource center. So get those wristbands even today. Uh, every time we do these kinds of things, we announce them for weeks, get the Mud Hens tickets, and then the week of, I get a bunch of people calling me saying, when's that Mud Hens game, and do you still have tickets left for the Mud Hens game? So if you are one of the people who calls me for wristbands for Farmer Charlie's, I'm keeping a list. We are going to put the names of all of those people on the screen the following week after, after Farmer Charlie's. We'll do everything we can to embarrass you into not having that happen next time. Now, really, if you could pick them up early, that'd be great. And then, uh, last but not least, we were going to, this afternoon, have a family meeting at 2.30 uh, to give status uh, and to possibly uh, get approval from the church on a proposal for how to move forward on expanding this room, uh, knocking out that wall and just about doubling the size of this room. Uh, but we're not, as I said in the first hour, having that meeting, and we're not having that meeting because... We, this week, uh, found out we, we may have some potential good news with regard to that. And if the good news comes through uh, the way it might, then we don't need to propose anything to you. The, the thing will just get done, okay? Uh, so, obviously, we're hoping and praying that that will happen. I was hoping and praying that I would have that news for you by today, but, uh, but we don't. I expect to, to have that certainly this, this week. So be praying about that. Pray that this, uh, this source actually comes through, and if that happens, then we'll be able to start that on time and get it enclosed by the time of the winter. And our builder believes that uh, we will be able to occupy 
the, the whole thing uh, by the end of January, by the first of next year. So it would be a marvelous thing for us if we can get that started, but it's all dependent on uh, uh, some of these things working out, okay? So just pray about that. No meeting this afternoon. Sorry for any convenience with regard to planning the meeting. All right. When we have to choose, today is the last, and the good news is we are just about to the end of your uh, 30-page notebook. Uh, beginning on page 31 is an appendix, and we've already made reference to the appendix in a prior week. So we want to finish off today, and down toward the bottom of page 25, we have the rise of the Christian mind discernment. And if you were to look back on page, on page 23, you would see that Roman numeral 1 is the decline of the Christian mind. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at why it is that in Christian circles, the use of the faculty of, of reason, reason has, uh, has declined in many circles. And there are a number of reasons that we've given. There are cultural reasons and religious reasons. If you've not been able to be with us for these prior sessions, all of our sessions are recorded on our website. So you have the notes. If you want to go back and listen to that, then I encourage you to do that. But now, instead of the decline of the Christian mind, now we want to look at the rise of the Christian mind. How is it then, despite that decline for cultural and religious reasons, that people are not using the brain that God has given us in the way that he intended in order for us to discern and make decisions? How do we, how do we bring that back? And we say that the main way that that happens is for us to recapture this biblical concept of discernment. So what is spiritual discernment? Spiritual discernment is the divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and ways from all others. And the key word in that definition is distinguish. So someone who has discernment is able to see differences in things that are not alike and similarities in things that are. But in Scripture, you often have distinctions being made because there's God and there's the world. And there's the believer and there's the unbeliever. There's the world and there's the church. There's right and there's wrong. There's light and there's darkness. And so because of those antitheses that you find throughout Scripture, it's necessary for us to have and cultivate the ability to distinguish those things that are right and wrong, those things that are light rather than darkness, those things that are pleasing to God rather than in conformity to the world, and on it goes. And so this issue of having discernment is extremely important, and it necessitates the ability to distinguish, see differences. And it's used in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You see, the Old Testament word is used 247 times. It refers to the process by which one comes to know or understands God, God's thoughts and ways through separating those things that differ. Notice that again, that distinguishing idea separating things that are not alike. And then the New Testament. The idea is that through the use of separating discrimination, a person makes judgments and decisions. And so this is something that's commended, encouraged in Scripture. It's absolutely necessary if we're going to make proper choices. And yet it has declined in, in our day for reasons we've given in previous weeks. We say at the top of page 26, it's obtained by a developmental process. And so over time, you and I can get better at discerning by virtue of, of using the reasoning ability that God has given us to see what pleases God, 
what fits under the categories of right and light and good from God's Word, and then applying that to our lives and circumstances. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, solid food is for the mature. And the mature, by practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So one aspect of maturity, one indication of maturity is that one can make these distinctions, that one can discern between those things that are best and those things that are not, those things that are good and those things that, that are evil. So we have to develop this, this quality of discernment. And if we're going to do that, then we're going to have to avoid some dangers that we have for you uh, beginning on page 27. We'll get to those in a moment. But in between, I just want to show you uh, one of the major dangers that keeps us from being discerning people. And that is that we think that truth is communicated to us by God in a way that bypasses the mind. And we discussed it a bit in previous weeks, but that's called mysticism. A mystic is somebody who believes that God communicates truth directly to your spirit, some immaterial part of you, bypassing your brain and your, and your mind. And when that happens, people are often directed by their, their feelings in terms of their decision-making. So instead of doing the hard work of making choices based on godly discernment, they make them based upon their feelings. And very often that's done using some passages of Scripture as justification. And that's the reason on page 26 we have these passages. These are, these are well-worn passages that are often misused in this mystical approach. So under Roman numeral 3, the Bible and individual direction. Following are some of the most often cited passages to support a mystical approach to decision-making. One of those is Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And the NIV says, and He will make your paths straight. Now, some of you, many of us grew up on a, a translation of that that says, and He will, what? Direct your paths. Well, that sounds like if I want direction, if I want to know which way to go, this is my passage, right? But in fact, that passage is not about directing your path. <clears throat> the translation, making your path straight, is actually what the Hebrew says. And so we say there, this verse teaches us that trusting God and living His way will avoid many obstacles that would otherwise come. So the idea is you're traveling along, and as you trust in the Lord, and you lean on His understanding, you'll avoid many of the pitfalls along the way that will overcome and get in the way of, of those who don't. He will make your path straight. And of course, in the day that that was written, most travel was by foot. And so the idea of having a smooth path and a straight path that was free of unnecessary obstacles was extremely important. And so scholar Bruce Waltke says this. He tells the story regarding the proper translation of this verse. I recall the astonishment of one of the committee members assigned to translate the book of Proverbs for the New International Version when he discovered that Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 had nothing to say about guidance. When confronted with linguistic data, he had to admit reluctantly that the verse more properly read, he will make your path smooth or, or straight. 
So this is one of the passages that people cite because it says in the King James, he will direct your paths. If I want to know this path or that path at a fork in the road, then, then this is how I, I do it. But that passage actually doesn't say that. It doesn't teach that. Romans 8, likewise. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And the question then is to what is one led according to this passage? Because spirit leading or the Lord led me is language in evangelicalism, isn't it? I mean, if, if you want to make decisions, this is the phrase that's often heard. The Lord is leading me or the Lord led me to do X, Y, or Z. Now, the Lord leads. I mean, God in his providence is leading in circumstances and working in circumstances. And I use that language myself, but I don't use it in a mystical way, meaning I feel like the Lord is leading me. What I mean is the Lord worked out the circumstances that led us in a particular direction. When the Lord led our church to purchase this building, I believe he led us to do that. But he didn't do that through any sort of a mystical approach. He did that through working out the circumstances, weighing all of the issues, we as a congregation talking and thinking about and praying about those issues and then coming to a decision on it. That's the Lord. The Lord led us in that. But it was not a sort of oomph, a sort of feeling that we had. It was God leading through the circumstances, through the facts, and through a deliberative process. And in Romans chapter 8, what is the context of what the Spirit is leading into? Well, in context, we say here, it's clear that the Spirit's work leads one to do the moral will of God. Apart from that work of the Spirit, obedience to God's will would be impossible. So what Paul, who wrote Romans 8, is saying is that one of the ways you know that you are a child of God is that the Spirit of God is working in your life such that you're doing the kinds of things that please God. You're doing His moral will. That's what Romans 8 is about. So spirit leading in Scripture is also not about a mystical uh, decision-making process. So the language is fine. It's scriptural language. And if by the spirit leading you mean God has providentially worked in the circumstances to bring us to a point where we weigh the facts and the, and the, and the issues involved and then come to a decision that we believe would please God, that's spirit leading. That's a good way to think of it. But being led by the Spirit is not, I feel like the Spirit is moving me in this direction. That's not what the Scriptures teach with regard to that. Here's another passage that's used, John 16 and verse 13, where Jesus said, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. And so the idea there is then the, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus is promising he will give after he ascends to the Father. And, of course, he made good on that promise. And when you have the spirit of truth, then the spirit is going to guide you. And then the idea is he's going to guide you into decision-making. Well, I'd like to point out a few things about that passage as well. Down at the bottom of page 26, you see John 14 and verse 26 there. And notice what Jesus said there. The counselor, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. So you have John 16, 13. He will guide you into all truth. You have John 14, 26. 
He will remind you of everything that I have, have said to you. And both of those, John 14, 26 and 16, 13, both of them were spoken at the same time. They were both spoken on the same night, the night before Jesus was crucified. You guys remember that? John chapter 13. Jesus and his first followers meet in a, in a room, a rented room. And Jesus is preparing them for the fact that the following day he's going to be crucified. As he begins to prepare them for that, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. And then he begins to show what love looks like in the form of service for one another. And he does this amazing thing where God, the God-man, washes the feet of his followers. And then Jesus, beginning in chapter 14, says, stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, now believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And then in John 14, all the way through John 16, he gives them instruction about what's going to happen now the next day. And what Jesus is going to do to make provision for them because he is going to be crucified. He says, but I will not leave you. I will send you another comforter. The task that I've come is that the hour is now. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to rise. But I will not leave you without a comforter. I will send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will do these things. And one of them is in verse 26 of chapter 14, and another is in chapter 16 and verse 13. And Jesus says to those guys, the Holy Spirit's going to bring to your remembrance everything. He's going to remind you of everything I said to you. So the question for you, for me, is this. These instructions that Jesus is giving in chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16, Those instructions, in many respects, are for the immediate task that those guys are going to have to carry out. Some of those tasks are not things that you are carrying out that I'm carrying out because they're special guys. Now, who are those guys? They're the apostles. And the apostles are like really special people. Not everybody can be an apostle. Uh, you're not an apostle, I'm not an apostle. The guy on TV who calls himself an apostle is not an apostle. Okay. But these guys are the apostles. Now, now what makes somebody an apostle? These are specially chosen emissaries that Jesus is going to use to establish his church. And how do I know this? Well, I know it a few ways. In order to be an apostle, you had to have been with Jesus. You had to have been with him physically in his teaching, and you actually, after he dies and raises, you had to be one who was a witness of his resurrection so that you could now go and spread this message of he's alive, the gospel. When Judas betrays Jesus that night, when he betrays Jesus, a few days later, the apostles say, we need to choose someone to take his spot. You all remember that? Acts chapter 1, they gather to choose someone to take his spot. Notice there's a spot. There's like a vacancy to be filled. 
in the apostolate, or whatever you want to call it, okay, the group of apostles. And they, and they meet together and they say in Acts chapter 1, we need someone who has been with us the whole time, who can be a witness with us of his resurrection, Acts chapter 1. So to be an apostle, you had to be somebody who was a witness to those things so that you could now be used by God to establish his church, which is precisely what these guys were called to do. How do I know this further? Paul, who had this miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, you're all familiar with that. But Paul had to defend his apostleship because he's not one of the original twelve. He called himself, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, quote, an apostle born out of due season. I'm the one apostle who's not those guys. That Jesus showed himself to in this miraculous way on the right, and he had to defend that. And when he defended it to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, here's the first thing he says, am I not an apostle? And then he says, have I not seen our risen Lord? You see, the defense of the fact that he is an apostle is that he's seen the risen Lord. So you're not an apostle because you haven't. But those guys were eligible be, to be because they had. Further, the Bible says explicitly that the church is built on the foundation of these special emissaries, specially chosen emissaries of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So these guys and their ministry were foundational. It goes further. When you come to the end of your Bible and history is over and God's plan has been fulfilled in every detail just as he predicted and you have the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, and John, who wrote the book of Revelation, is given a vision of the, the heavenly city and its dimensions and what it will be like. He says this in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14. Revelation 21, 14. That on the foundation of the heavenly city there were 12 sides. And on those 12 sides were written the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. And Leroy is not on there. There's no Apostle Leroy. You know, these guys are called the Twelve. They've, the, the, the foundations have the names of the Twelve Apostles of the Lamb. They were a special group, clearly, right? I mean, when you can number a group exclusively like that, and you can have twelve sides and their names are on it in the heavenly city, yikes. And this special group had to do special things. Establishing the church, completing the New Testament, and showing that the, demonstrating that the message of the gospel was true by many miraculous signs, the Bible says, to authenticate the message that they preached. And so Jesus gave them the ability to do things that nobody today can do. They were able to raise people from the dead. And there's not a faith healer anywhere that can do that. But they were able to do that. 
They were given that ability in the special mission that God had given them. Now, with all of that, the church is founded on the apostles. The 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb are the foundation of the heavenly city, that they are called the 12, that they are given these special abilities. And Jesus is talking to them the night before he dies in John 14 and 15 and 16 to prepare them. You're going to have the Holy Spirit, and this is what you're going to do. And the Holy Spirit is going to, now with that in mind, guide you into all truth and bring to your remembrance everything I've said to you. So just do a simple test. Does the Holy Spirit bring to your remembrance everything Jesus has said? And of course the answer is no. Why did they need that ability? Because they're going to write it down. They're going to write it down and they're going to preserve it for us in Scripture. So in John 13 through 17, this is all called the upper room discourse. This is all Jesus praying, or excuse me, instructing about what's going to happen the next day. And then in John 17, Jesus prays. And he prays for three groups of of people. He prays for himself, first of all, in John 17. He says, Father, the hour has now come. I mean, with that background, just think about, man, just try to think about being there. The hour has come. Now glorify me with the glory that I had with you from before the foundation of the world. He prays for himself. He then goes on to pray for the apostles. And then he goes on to pray for those who will believe in their message. And guess who that is? That's you and me. The night before Jesus died, he prayed for you and me. So he's got these guys, and he's giving them these special instructions, and they are instructions that are intended for them to carry out their special ministry of establishing the church and completing God's word, the New Testament. So to use what they were able to do as verses for us on guidance is simply using those passages out of their context. Now, there are all kinds of principles with regard to God's work with them that are applied to us. And so the truth is God is going to work in your life and my life providentially and in our circumstances to, to guide us to pivotal points where we then make God-honoring decisions, all of that. But that's the upper room discourse given to the apostles and intended for the apostles who had a special mission. Now here's another passage that's often used, top of page 27. Colossians 3 and Philippians 4, both of them <clears throat> speak of peace. And so the idea in using these passages is, I know that a decision is the right decision if I have, right? Somebody said it, if I have peace, if I have peace about it. So sometimes you'll hear people say that. I'm convinced this is the right decision because, quote, I have peace about it. And there's, nothing in, there's nothing in Scripture that, that indicates that, that says the way you make a decision and know it's the right decision is, is if you, quote, have peace about it. Now, we're going to see that these passages don't teach that. Of course, that does not mean go ahead and make the decision if you have unrest about it. You know, if you feel uneasy about it, well then, pull back. Let's think about, let's pray about, get some counsel about, why do you feel uneasy about it? 
So the fact that I'm saying having peace about it is not what the Bible teaches as the way to know that it's the right decision doesn't conversely mean go ahead with it if you're unrestful about it. But the Bible does not say peace is the indicator that it's the right decision. Here are the passages that are often used. Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In neither passage, we say here, is the topic of individual guidance for decision-making. Rather, in the Colossians passage, the issue is harmony within the body, right? Isn't that the peace of God ruling your heart? Since as members you were called to peace. So be at peace with each other, is what Colossians 3 is saying. And then in Philippians 4, it's individual contentment with one's circumstances like we saw in our first hour today. So I have peace in the midst of the circumstances I am in, even when they are adverse circumstances. That's something that's unknown to the world. It's something that transcends understanding, but it is something that God gives in those, uh, to those who are content in their circumstances. So stated negatively, peace is the absence of anxiety within a person in Philippians 4 or the absence of hostility between persons in this case specifically within the church. But what it's not is not about individual decision-making. And so there are a number of passages that are used for that kind of mystical approach, and um, here are some of the dangers of that mystical approach. As applied to discerning the will of God, mysticism rears its head via the inner impressions by which many believers seek guidance and often has the effect of undermining the authority of Scripture. So one of the dangers is feelings are enthroned. If you were with us last week, I referred to a phrase, the autonomy of our feelings. That feelings just are, and I just have them, and you can't judge my feelings. I can't help my feelings. They just are what they are. And the problem with that is that the Bible commands you to have certain feelings, as we saw last week, and it forbids you from having other kinds of feelings. And so the idea that I just have these feelings and they're just autonomous and they can't be governed is contrary to Scripture. I mean, think of just one more example. We saw some last week. But if you're married, then you're forbidden to have, to have feelings toward another, another person outside of your marriage, Right? Feelings of intimacy, of sexual attraction. The Bible forbids you to do that. If you just say, well, I just do, well, that won't do for God. And so God then is going to require you and me to cultivate our minds, cultivate our thoughts, discipline our thoughts, so that we are not fostering those kinds of illicit feelings. So there are things that are forbidden in Scripture with regard to our feelings. And so therefore to say, well, in fact, let's read, our culture is awash in emotion. For many, what I feel is tantamount to truth. Feeling is believing. So one author says, when the not so still, 
or small voice of the self becomes the highest authority, religious belief undergoes a change so dramatic it no longer involves commitment to any authority beyond oneself. The church is no longer regarded as a repository of truth, nor as a source of spirit moral authority, but merely as a place to go for spiritual strokes. Therefore, to say, I feel led in a situation like this where feelings are enthroned and autonomous, if you say, I feel led, that ends all discussion because who can argue with your feelings? I feel led to. I feel led to leave my spouse. You say, well, nobody would ever say that. (laughs) Welcome to my world. And I am dead, dead, dead serious. So don't make the mistake of saying that to me. Because it's contrary to what God Almighty says. You don't just feel led to leave your spouse. And God spilled some ink about that. And whatever your feelings are, what God says trumps them. And I am telling you, friends, I am not making that up. Which in turn leads to point B. The rationalization of sinful desires. When feelings are authoritative, it's very easy to devalue the primacy of the Word of God and His moral will revealed in it. If my desires are equated with God's will, then who can question me? Never mind that we each still suffer from the effects of depravity and therefore should be very skeptical skeptical of our own motives and desires, right? So, it is not right, obviously. I feel led to leave my spouse. And if you lead your sentences and your reasons with I feel, be really careful. And further than that, once, you, once upon that false premise, man, look out, baby. Because then who can speak authoritatively to that? And you know, I have the misfortune or the good fortune, depending on how I look at it on a given day, to be somebody who has to speak into situations like that. And at least to this point, God in His grace has allowed me not to pull punches with that. And by His grace, I hope I never will. If someone tells me I feel led to do something contrary to what God says, then I will let you know in no uncertain terms what God says. And if your response is, you have overstepped your bounds, Pastor, you say, come on, welcome to my world. Then I am reminding everyone here that is perfectly in the center of the bounds that God has placed me to say this is what God Almighty says. Contrary to what the culture says, contrary to what your feelings say, this is what God says. He's not only placed, he's placed me there most definitely. He's placed you there too. We are people who say we believe God's word. And there is nothing that's going to trump God's word. Nothing. 
We're called Community Bible Church for a reason, right? Our slogan says we are the family of God built on what? The Word of God, to the glory of God. The first article in our statement of faith says that we believe that the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. So we're going to stand on that, not on somebody's feelings, not on what somebody thinks or feels ought to be the deal. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? I'm just saying. Okay? And, and I would ask you, I would ask you all, pray that that's always the way it's going to be. Pray that it's always going to be that way for you, for me. We're going to stand on God's Word. We'll try to be as kind as we can. We'll try to speak the truth in, in love. But we're going to speak the truth. So pray that we'll always be people of the book, not people of our feelings. And if you're a member of this church, you're a member of a church that is about the book. If you're thinking about being a member of this church, then you're thinking about being a member of a church that's about the book. Now, we want to summarize all of what we've been talking about for several weeks on page 29. Putting it all together. This is just really a summary of what we have looked at. We've given lots of warnings about how not to make decisions. We've given positive direction on how to make decisions. And we want to then summarize it on these last two pages. I can do that fairly quickly and I have to in the next seven minutes. In this series, top of page 29, we've covered enough material that it's possible for the forest to get lost in the trees. That is, there's the danger of getting bogged down in the details and we miss the big picture. So let's tie it together. We've seen that there are two aspects of God's will. So if I want to make decisions that are honoring to God, that are within His will, I need to understand that there are these two aspects. There is God's sovereign will, which we refer to as His plan. And what is God's sovereign will? It's whatever comes to pass. It includes all that God has chosen to allow. God's sovereign will is hidden, known only to God. It cannot be missed and therefore does not require that we pursue it. <laughs> you don't have to pursue God's sovereign will, right? Because it's whatever comes to pass. And so God has planned all things whatsoever come to pass. You know God's sovereign will for today, tomorrow. And it's whatever happened the day before. That's His sovereign will. But God's sovereign will is not necessarily the same as his moral will. There are things that God allows in his overall plan that are contrary to, we say in that blank, his desire. They're contrary to what God is like. But they're incorporated into his overall sovereign plan. Now, what would an example of that be? God the Son was murdered. That's contrary to God's moral will, right? The people who murdered Jesus were guilty of sin. They were guilty of murder, capital sin. And actually, Peter in the first sermon, first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2, pronounces that very thing. He pronounces those who conspired against Jesus as guilty. They committed a murder. But was that murder in God's sovereign plan? Indeed. And so you can... Everything that comes to pass is in God's sovereign plan, but not everything that happens is His moral will, His desire. God's moral will is what pleases Him. 
God's moral will has been made known, unlike his sovereign will, which isn't made known until after it happens. It's revealed in the Bible. And it can be missed, and therefore it must be pursued. So Deuteronomy 29, 29. We saw this several weeks ago, but Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. That would be a sovereign will. I don't know what it is. He's working it out. The secret things belong to the Lord. But these are revealed, Deuteronomy 29, to you and to your children and to your children's children, that we might obey them. Deuteronomy 29, 29. So there are two aspects of God's will. So when you sin, you can't say, see, when you just say, well, it's God's will. When you sin, it's not his moral will. It's never his moral will. But in his sovereign will, he can use everything that happens, include the, including the sinful choices of people, to work out all things together for good. Thanks be to God. And so in your past, you made sinful choices. Call them sinful choices. But a sovereign God can now can use those choices and he can redeem those as part of his overall plan. But they're still sinful choices. God's moral will, secondly, reveals purpose and mission. What's the purpose for everything? It's the glory of God. And how is God glorified? Through the mission that he has given us. That mission is to multiply churches that make and mature disciples. We've seen that in previous weeks. And so what's your role then in that? God requires that each person participate in the mission via his individual calling. So now I want to make decisions that honor God. Well, I need to know what my purpose is. It's to glorify God. In this age, the glory of God is mediated through the mission that he's carrying out through his church, and he has called each of us to play an active role in the advance of that mission through the gifts that he's given to each of us. So I need to make my decisions in light of my purpose. I need to prioritize my decisions in light of that purpose, the advance of God's mission, and my participation in it. How is God's calling for you, for me, made known? Number three, God's providence reveals our calling. Calling is your individual role in the mission. That is, how you are wired and where you are placed. That's how you know your individual calling. How you're wired, where you're placed. You say, where I'm placed. Yeah, here. <laughs> like southeast Michigan. Right? Acts chapter 17 and verse 26. All right, go back to verse 24. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. Paul says to a bunch of philosophers in Athens, Greece, the God who made the world and everything in it is not worshipped in temples made by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And then he goes on in verse 26 to say this, and he has determined the times appointed for them, mankind, I'm quoting, and the exact places where they should live. Yikes, that's a sovereign God. He determined I'd be born in southeast Michigan? 
that I would be born in 1962 in Wyandotte Hospital? And the answer to that's absolutely yes. And he has placed me in his sovereign providence in a particular place. Now, that sovereign God can move me too, absolutely. And he can move me for lots of reasons and move you. Health reasons, job reasons, all sorts of things outside your control. He can place you and then he can replace you, right? But as you make a voluntary decision to replace where God has put you, that decision needs to be made in light of the mission that he's given you. Now, you're glad to know we got just a few seconds left. Because now I've gone to meddling. But that would radically alter the way we make our decisions. We don't make our decisions that way. Let's just tell the truth. We just say, I just pick a place on the map that's got nice lakes and got whatever I... And that's how I decide that. And God says, I've given you a mission. I've placed you in the mission. I've gifted you for the mission. I may replace you. I may relocate you for the mission. But you make your decisions in light of what I have assigned you to do and left you here to do. God's providence reveals our calling. That includes how you're wired, what you're able to do, what your experiences are, what your gifting is. We have a whole ministry designed to help you find out your wiring. Our community service ministry, when you join our church, you have to do a profile to find that out for that very reason. And then, bottom of page 29, we must exercise wisdom to advance the mission. Wisdom is the skill to order life in a proper way. God has told us that the proper way to order our lives is around the mission. Therefore, wise choices are those that bring glory to God in advancing it. And then we've got a checklist on page 30. So lest anyone forget, as you go through your decisions, use that as your checklist, okay? All right. Next week, from self-help to God's help, let's ask the Lord to be with us this week. Father, we thank you for this time to be reminded about what you have done to show us what we're to be about. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being involved in the work that you're doing in your world. It is a privilege. I pray that everyone here would see it for the grand, great privilege that it is to be used as your instruments in your hands and your feet in your mission. Help us, Lord, to appropriate, to apply these principles that we've learned for these several weeks so that we order our lives accordingly, make our decisions in a way that's designed to intentionally please you in an active way to advance your mission and spread your fame in your world. Go with us, we ask you, Lord, this week. Help us to live in a way that honors you as your ambassadors. Protect us, grant us safety, we ask, and bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.